TED Audio Collective. Hi, ladies and Jen. Uh, my name is Jason Clayscales. I am a New York City native, the Bronx and Harlem in particular, and I am a sports writer and editor. I'm in this very interesting period of my life where I am a work-from-home parent. Um, I have a five-month-old son who is wonderful. He is everything, and <laughs> I'm actually recording this because he's actually asleep. Jason is a listener who left us this voice memo a couple months back, and I have been thinking about him ever since. At home, trying to get his baby to sleep, keep his career going, and start a company. I have this full-time job in media, which has me working rather odd hours, and then during the day, I am trying to be super dad, uh, while my wife, who makes much more money than I do, works at a private school here in the city. And I feel like right now, I have to kind of put some parts of my entrepreneurship vision on hold. I'm kind of burning both ends of the candle. Do I focus on one part of the business right now, or do I still try to just reach for it and just basically not sleep? I'm not really sure what to do. Oh, Jason, as a mother of two and an ambitious person, I feel how conflicted you are right now at this point in your life. Like you can't do it all. You really want to be with your baby and build your business. It's confusing. I don't want to feel lost anymore. Maybe this is just therapeutic and that's why I'm leaving this voice memo. So if somebody hears it, I'm, I am grateful. But I'm just going to keep listening to ZigZag because I think it's incredible and I'm inspired by what you ladies have done. And I remain somewhat hopeful that maybe I can get there myself as well. Oh, we are so not there either, Jason. The conflict keeps going. But I do think it's interesting how more men are talking about it. This struggle to provide for their family, be professionally fulfilled, and be good dads and good people. Is it easy? Hell no. But we got to start by delving into this confusion and how some people are trying to figure out new ways to do it all. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. This is ZigZag, the podcast about the changing culture of business and work. And on this episode, we're talking to someone else who felt this kind of confusion. Someone who decided to run an experiment on his own life to see if he could solve it. He left his job at BlackRock Financials, where he was making a heck of a lot of money, but he felt like this. If you looked me up on LinkedIn, you would think that I'd be the happiest person in the world. I'm like super privileged. Things are great, but I feel tremendous anxiety. I'm not showing up as a father. I, I don't know what brings my life meaning, and I'm just confused. Kay He gave himself 18 months to figure it out. How to reconcile what his parents expected of him, his perception of his masculinity, and how it related to making a lot of money, and what he felt like he needed to feed his soul and not be checking email when he was with his kids. Because he decided that that mattered just as much as his paycheck. So he laid down some rules with his wife for their new life and then went for it. Quick break, and we'll tell you what happened. Thanks for being here. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. 
That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. We're back. I'm Manoush. This is Zigzag. And I'm actually going to hand this episode over to my business partner, Jen Poyant. She usually shows up at the end of every episode for our analysis segment, but not this week. She did this interview with Kay He, the mega financial guy whose friends and family thought he was completely nuts for giving up his awesome life. A lot of people thought Jen was nuts too when she quit her job last year at New York Public Radio to start our company, Stable Genius Productions. She and Kay bonded over that and the fact that they're both surfers. So I'm going to turn things over to her right now. Kay was speaking to her from his home in LA and Jen was here in New York. So do me a favor, just say your name and then your title for me. Kay He, creator of Rad Reads and contributing editor at Quartz. Welcome to ZigZag. Thank you. So we've been talking with as many people over the past year as we can about We've been talking to people that have done something bold in their lives, left a job, started a business, or made something. And then they did it without the usual script for success. Mm. And we want to use these conversations as a testing ground for both Manoush and I and for our listeners to get two things. We want to have them helping us kind of redefine collectively Mm. a a macro definition of what the future of success looks like for our society, Mm -hmm. for the planet even, really big, broad ideas. And we also want to take a micro look at what success looks like for our business and for us as individuals. So I wanted to talk to you because you have done this. So why don't we start where you were back in 2015 at BlackRock? Okay. Cool. My entire career has been in financial services up until this jump. And so I ran a team of research analysts who would research and find investments. And we would create portfolios for gigantic endowments and insurance companies and pensions and family offices. So I was doing hedge fund research. And that was basically, I had done that at different firms for almost 14 years. And did you like it? Yeah, it. I did like it. Investing in general is, it's like a like solving a gigantic problem where there's no universal truth. And so, you know, you know what you need to do, like you need to generate financial returns, but there's a bazillion variables that you're trying to piece together. Also, I had a ton of autonomy. You know, I had recruiting, I had hiring say, I didn't have to travel much. I liked my bosses and my colleagues. I got paid extremely well. Mm-hmm. I was making way more money than I ever thought I would when I was a child, way more money than my parents ever thought I would make in my lifetime. And so, yeah. And my hours, they were long, like 12 hours a day, 60 hours a week. But for the type of role that I had with the compensation that I had, they were actually not that long either. So what happened? Was this like a sudden realization that you had to leave or was it a a moment where you had to really kind of soul search and figure out what to do next? It definitely wasn't a sudden realization, but the way I describe it was it's a little bit like having a pebble in your shoe. Mm -hmm. 
where you're kind of walking and something's off and it's mildly uncomfortable. Brene Brown has this phrase that I love, low-grade anxiety, Mm -hmm. where you're like, I can keep doing this. I could probably keep walking with this discomfort for the rest of my life. But just like feeling that, and I think one thing that has propelled my life and my career is that I'm deeply curious. And so when I felt that, I was like, what is that thing that feels a little bit off? And it was three things. One was every time I got a raise or a bonus, all that, I'd experienced this surge in happiness. I'd be like, I am crushing it. This is what I'm here for. And then like very quickly thereafter, I would go back to where I was before. Like my life was easier. So like maybe I got a nicer apartment and went on a nice, some nice vacations. But that like internal angst, that didn't go away with money and promotions. So that was the first thing. The second thing, which a little bit like what you are doing at ZigZag, is like I was looking at the world around me and I was like, oh my God, there's so much cool stuff happening in technology, in creativity, in media, Bitcoin, like all this stuff. Like I was the guy that was talking about Bitcoin in investment committee meetings Mm -hmm. when Bitcoin was at like $300. (laughs) And people were like, okay, stop talking about it. This has no relevance to what we do. Stop being weird. And I'm like, I'm not being weird. Just like at least entertain the fact that there could be something really different happening. Uh-huh. And they're like, no, we're just going to like keep doing the thing that we've been doing for like, you know, hundreds of years and just do Bitcoin on your free time. And then the last thing was really like related to the financial services industry was like, it's just, it is such a zero sum mindset. There's always a winner and there's always a loser. There's a perception. I don't actually believe that it's true, mm-hmm. but the guiding mindset is that there's a winner and there's a loser. If the business owner wins, the client loses. If one person gets promoted, everyone else lost because that person who got promoted took away from the bonus pool. And that just, it perpetuates like a lot of short-term thinking. It perpetuates cultures based off of fear. It perpetuates this mindset that there's never enough. And so by virtue of there never being enough, you're always wanting more. This didn't all hit me at like one point in time, but little by little, and like I had a kid and then like, you know, your perspective starts to change. You start, you know, I lost a few friends to like illnesses. Mm -hmm. Your perspective starts to change too. And you're like, wait a minute, this game of making as much money as possible, like there's a lot more. I owe it to myself to figure it out. And before you finally made the decision to go, what was your definition of success? Did you approach it just kind of like everybody else does in the industry and Like you said, it's a zero-sum game and there are only winners and losers. Or did you have a personal definition of success already that was different? I guess I never like went through the exercise to go through it. So I just was, I had a subconscious belief view of what success was. But really like it boils down to how I was raised. My parents came to New York City from Cambodia Mm -hmm. and they basically, they came to the country with very little barely speaking the language, no friends, country was in civil war. And they had us, my sister and I, and their entire life was dedicated to my sister and I having opportunity, you know, education, which would lead to achievement, which would lead to financial security and stability. And that's like, those were the pillars that they wanted for themselves and thus handed to us. 
we lived with this mindset that like everything could always, at any moment in time, everything could be taken away from you. Mm. And that fear, that scarcity thinking, I took that mindset combined with like the immigrant work ethic. I mean, my parents, they know how to work. The aphorism I had growing up is we may not be the smartest, but we're the hardest working. And like, it's just kind of like, I knew how to put my head down and just get stuff done. So if I think back of like what my definition of success was, was basically no one ever telling me what I can or cannot have, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Putting it all on myself, pure financial agency on my life. But because of the opportunities, like they sent me to a great college, I went to Yale. When I went to Yale, I started working on Wall Street. And so like, Those parental values and desires for financial security were still there. But then I started looking around and like, oh, New York City, the the world of New York City, where there's always someone, you know, richer, better looking and luckier than you. (laughs) And I started to yearn for that. And so those were kind of the two views of success that I had held leading into leaving BlackRock. You said you had a baby and you got married. So did you turn to your wife at some point and say, this isn't working anymore? I have to, what was that conversation like? I have to make a change. I did. I mean, she, my wife knew that I wanted to do something different. And I think we were all afraid, right? Because, you know, I was, in this terms, I was a made man. I could have just punched in that ticket mm-hmm. until I was like 60 years old and we would not have had a financial worry ever. Mm. And my wife also grew up middle class, so we we were aware of that. But we also knew ourselves. We didn't want stuff. We didn't want huge houses. We didn't want, like, fancy watches and handbags and jewelry and all that stuff. What we really wanted was quality time with each other and our growing family. Mm -hmm. And we wanted flexibility, I love working. My wife knows that I love working. I love to work on things that are meaningful to me on my own terms. And I think that was what was missing. We saw a possibility of things like leaving New York City, taking some time off, or breaking out of a commuting schedule, right? Like we knew that those things were possibilities. Mm-hmm. And so my wife, she was totally cool in, in the sense that there were a few ground rules. She's like, I trust you. I know that you are a resourceful person that knows how to get stuff done. She also said, I know that you have this financial scarcity mindset, you know, that comes from your parents and your upbringing, that everything can be taken away from you at any given point in time, Mm -hmm. which is not true. Like she would say to me, she's like, this is not true. You've worked in the financial industry for 14 years. You know how to manage money. You understand risk. You have savings. People like you. So... Yes, it is risky, but always remember like the big picture of things. And then there was the big caveat. She's like, if you're going to freak out about money every 15 minutes and second guess yourself when you want to order a bottle of wine or a drink, it's not worth it. Just keep your job. We don't want to introduce that element of anxiety into our marriage. Wow. So basically promise me that you're not going to freak the F out when it comes to money, and then we'll be good. And I mean, 
that's a big promise, you know, as a primary breadwinner who has those insecurities and anxieties that have been internalized and beat into him since his childhood to walk away from something, you know, where you never have to worry about money again is, I mean, I'm kind of shaking right now, just (laughs) verbalizing it to you. It's been a lot, a lot of work, you know, since to navigate that. I mean, we have some kind of money tiff every, you know, nine days probably for four years. But we, we have the toolkit to quickly diffuse them before they kind of spiral out of control. Did you set goals or did you just go? I kind of had a plan. My plan was initially, and I think you guys talked about this in season one, was to become a venture-backed entrepreneur. I wanted to go and raise money and do the thing that, you know, that Fast Company writes about. And mm-hmm. I guess I'm too old to be on a 30 under 30, but to be on a 40 under 40 list. And and I wanted to be that guy. And I think that in hindsight, that was part of me really, again, recalibrating what success meant, right? To me, you know, it sounds so lame, but to me, a big portion of success was other people thinking I was successful. (laughs) And what better way to do that is to do the thing that was actually even harder than what I was doing on Wall Street is to like create a multi-million dollar company. So that's what I thought I would do. I thought I would take a couple months. I hadn't really taken a vacation. I mean, in 15 years, I had taken two contiguous weeks twice in my life. Once was in between jobs and once was my honeymoon. Wow. At the macro level, I made an angel investment in myself you and your listeners know this, angel investments, very, very high risk of going to zero, but, you know, risk for spectacular returns. So we basically took 18 months of living expenses, not like the ramen kind, but the like the life that we wanted to live, put them aside. And we said, and I said, once that number goes to zero, I'll say this experiment failed. And uh, I'll go back to get a job. So for 18 months, we spent three months traveling. We did a, what what we call it, a a Bali, uh, eat, pray, love version, family style. Mm -hmm. So we kind of traveled one-way ticket type stuff in uh, meditation, yoga, all the cliches, you name them, we did them. And then got back and I started down the road for this fintech company. But I had had just enough separation from my old life that I was just like, I don't think I want to do this. You know, this is just putting lipstick on a pig. I know CEOs of venture-backed companies. They might be the only people who have it worse off than Wall Street people (laughs) in terms of how hard they work and the demands on their time. And also, uh, there's an important part, which, you know, I was 35 years old. I had never once thought about what my insecurities were and what my fears were. Mm -hmm. And if anything, anytime I questioned one of my insecurities, it was just like, stop thinking about that, work harder. And again, that came from my parents. And, you know, whenever I was like asking a bigger question about life, they'd say like, you have too much free time. Get, go, go, just go back to work. <laughs> the reason you're asking yourself these questions means you have too much free time, which means you're not working, which means you're not making money. Just go get a job, stop asking the questions. And so I had no sense of like what motivated me. I didn't know like what scared me. And I knew that there were side effects of it. I had trouble being present around my family. You know, that's my number one value. But like, I couldn't be in front of my one-year-old without being on the phone. Mm -hmm. I'd see it, like I'd be reading her like goodnight moon and I'd be typing email messages in my head while reading her stories. I was like, something is seriously wrong here. 
So how did I face these? There was two ways. One, you give yourself the space, right? When you're constantly like responding to emails and running from meeting to meeting and, you know, rushing home to put your kids to sleep and you just haven't given yourself the space to go there. So I had this space now, like I just woke up. I was like, I have nothing to do today. And you kind of start to get in your own head. And then the other was that I started working with a life coach who kind of, she really like opened my eyes to a lot of these questions. And I knew they were there and I just, I needed the prompt. And I'll never forget, we talked our first session. She's like, you're really afraid. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, well, you're talking a mile a minute and you kind of like all over the place. Like you don't make eye contact, you're afraid. I knew I needed to start stretching. And I finally had the time and I had the people to push me to do it. There were a few identities that were coming up. So these were a lot of people from my old life. They'd say, well, you're crazy. Mm -hmm. And I actually didn't think it was that crazy because, you know, I was like, well, I have 18 months of this and I'm employable and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, but you're crazy. And I'm like, am I really, you know, like the self-doubt starts to kick in. Like, am I really crazy? Someone who I respected a lot had told a friend, he's like, Kay's crazy. I've seen this story play out before. He's going to spend way more money than he thinks he will. He's going to come back begging to come back into the industry, and his wife's going to leave him. I'd get that text from people saying, what are you doing these days? Question mark. Really? And I'm like, oh my God, if I get another one of these texts, I'm going to lose my mind. And so... I basically had 12 months of living expenses left. And I basically said to myself, I'm just going to do things that make me happy. And so I had this like little rinky dink newsletter and people really liked it. 500, 600 readers, mostly friends. And they liked it and I loved making it. And so I was like, I'm just going to make this thing better. I'm going to design a logo for it. I'm going to buy a domain. And then there was like a little bit of a tipping point there where I had realized that I really liked writing. I was like, look, I'm 35 years old. If you looked me up on LinkedIn, like you would think that I'd be the happiest person in the world. I'm like super privileged. Things are great, but I feel tremendous anxiety. I'm not showing up as a father. I don't know what brings my life meaning. And I'm just confused. Life is confusing. And I'm trying to figure out Those are big admissions for a man in our society to make. Big ones. You don't see men talk about that very often. So what was the reaction that you got? And also, it's a really incredible move to just decide one day that that's what you're going to do, be a writer. I mean, if you saw my arms, I have like huge goosebumps because it just felt like a lightening of a burden, right? This was something that I had internalized so in a very male energy way, it would just like put it in a box and like bury it deep into your soul and hope you can outlive it so you never have to confront it. (laughs) Like that was my approach. And then like anything, when you see like a glimmer of, of a different type of existence or when you see a glimmer of possibility, you start to take a deep breath. You're like oh my God, I can breathe. Mm. And so it wasn't an overnight thing. You're talking like 15 reads on blog posts. 75% of them are family who are terrified that I'm doing. I mean, my mom was like, like, why would you do this? Really? You're like, did we screw up as parents? I'm like, no, you were amazing parents, which is why I'm doing this. And so it didn't happen overnight. 
It was slowly building. I didn't know it was happening like that, like as it was happening, but I knew in hindsight. And then to get to the response, I mean, it was magic. It was so, it's still mind-blowing. I keep every email that people send me. It, It was along the lines of like, I don't know what you're doing or why you're doing this, but when you said X, when you talked about your fear of death, mm. or when you talked about this fight you had with your wife, you have verbalized something that I didn't even know that I felt. You know, a 19-year-old college kid in Australia who had lost his little brother said that the things that I was writing him just made him feel less alone. It's just like, I mean, it's... It's like, holy moly, like, this work is real. Like, I don't really know what the company is, but this is a real thing. For me, my oldest brother, Josh, died when he was just shy of his 29th birthday. Mm. And then my father passed away several years later. And so I was only in my 20s, my very early 20s when this all happened. So my perception of mortality, I think, certainly in early adulthood was was shaped by those experiences. I was very close with my brother. Mm-hmm. And of course, all human beings have to face their own mortality and the mortality of the people they love in their lives. Once you started really thinking about this from your own perspective, What was it about the fear? Was there a specific experience in your life or your family's life, or was it just more of a vague fear about your own death? Mm, So, And if it's too personal, it's totally fine. You don't have to answer. No, there's no such thing. The it's a wonderful question that I'm I unravel to this day. I think that because you you think like a fear of death, you think of like pain, or you think of like mourning and grieving and loss. The thing that scared me was the infinite nature of time. That like time goes on forever. And then me, Kay, my essence, my soul, my spirit, whatever, my body is just this like little tiny speck. Like it's like a, a particle. A lot of that, the fear of death, it took me a while to realize like a fear of irrelevance is driven by my ego. I did a lot of life coaching three hours every four weeks for five straight years around like two topics like you're not going to go broke and you are a speck in the universe (laughs) those are basically the two topics we talk about for like hundreds of hours in the past five years tens of thousands of dollars okay my fellow specks in the universe We're going to take a quick break, but do stay with us because when we come back, more with Jen and Kay and a fascinating exercise that he has people do to help them figure out their relationship to money. It's good stuff. We'll be right back. We're back. It's ZigZag. I'm Anoush, and I'll be back again at the end of the show. But first, here's the rest of Jen's interview with Kay. And... It's all about money and mortality with a little sprinkle of surfing thrown in there. I gotta say, I'm not a surfer, more of a sidewalk person myself. CNN has called you, this is my favorite one, the Oprah for millennials. It seems like it's working. What are your measures for success now? Success is a weird thing, especially, yeah, the CNN article, that's great. But if you look at my P&L, pre-CNN article and post-CNN articles, like, Nothing changed. (laughs) My definition of success, you know, I don't want to worry about money. And 
there's rational worries about money and there's irrational worries about money. I was reading this research, it's like it's called shopping bag lady syndrome, mm-hmm. where a third of women who make over $250,000 a year feel like there's a real probability that they'll be homeless. There's so many studies of like the irrational nature of people thinking that they're going to be broke. Mm. The irrationality is what has let us propagate as a human species. Right. Right. Like always being on guard, always being vigilant. So I want to feel financially secure and cover my cash flow. I want to like earn more than I spend every year. So I'm getting close to that Mm -hmm. level. So that's a big one. Yeah. I want to be able to like pay for my kids' college and, you know, like I want to be able to take a couple of nice vacations. I'm very close to a lot of those things, not because I have this amount of money, but because most of them are more preconditioned on me having time and flexibility. I want to have the flexibility in my life to allow me to be the creator and parent and spouse that I want to be. Cool. That's like very, very, very important to me. I have designed it into my life that I get to spend, you know, three to four hours with my kids every day. I don't want to be thinking I need to check my phone or that I'm like not serving some master somewhere in some place. Yeah. Right. And then the other day is like I do like tons of like beach walk networking meetings and like I bring one of my kids and like it is like a true integration of life and work. I also don't like over try to engineer the future, Mm. right? I have a confidence that like I think it's moving in the right trend line and I just kind of run with that. So financial security, flexibility, how you spend your time. And the other is like who I spend my time with. I don't want to be around people who bring me bad energy. Because like at the end of the day, like so much about what makes a life meaningful, rich, and happy is about the quality of your relationships. Mm. I make that choice every day. Another measure of success, you'll appreciate this one, is the ability to surf every day. Yeah. So I redesigned my life. I mean, it sounds like you're on your way to figuring out what success is. But I'm curious when it comes to just like the pure financial aspect of this, when it comes to making a living, you said you're getting there when it comes to mm-hmm. positive cash flow. And what do you see for the future of your business? So financially... I'm starting to see that there's a path. So I, I want to stay s- small. Like I don't want to really grow for for a while because I know the second that I grow, I start to lose some of that family flexibility. Yep. And I'm just scared. Like I don't want to give, because we got such a good thing going that I'm willing to give up some of the upside, a lot of the upside. Like there's literally only so much one person can do yep. to preserve that at least until like my kids are a little bit older. Mm-hmm. So that's how I think about it that way. But the thing that I've been really, the message I've honed in on has been this like relationship between money, how we spend our time, and what is a fulfilling life. And like trying to really like guide people towards the middle of that Venn diagram. So I give a lot of talks around the topic of money and happiness, ironically to the financial services industry and to wealth management clients. <laughs> The second is I do individualized one-on-one coaching around these topics. And the thing I'm most excited about is I'm looking to put this all into an online course where, because a lot of it is like homework-based, like it's like very simple questions. Like, why do you make money? Write down on a piece of paper 10 reasons why you make money. And 
if you just write it down, you would see like some of them are completely ridiculous. Some of them you have already, and some of them are legit aspirational. Knowing how to parse those into those three categories is a very powerful thing that, again, old K, just I never spent the time. It just takes time and it takes teachers to get you to think about these things. The thing that's different, though, now, Jen, like four years later, is that I see how to make money. I know what, how to make it and I know what it will take and I know how long it will take. I have a sense, which basically is another way of saying I'm much more confident than I was four years ago, as I'm sure you and Manush are. I see so many possibilities now and it really is a question of like, what aligns with my life design? Where is there an impact? I don't over-index on impact in terms of number of people my message touches. It's really, it's a little bit more nebulous and unquantifiable, but I feel it, you know, like I know in my heart when it's happening. And creative freedom, the ability and space to create things that I'm proud of every single day. Thank you so much for this conversation and for opening up a little bit about your experience and your process. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Half an hour would be fine from J Street to here. Half an hour. Yes. I did it in half an hour this morning. And I missed the F train by 20 seconds, like sliding doors. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow 20 well, years ago. for a reason. So I could run down the streets of Manhattan 10 minutes late, okay. looking like a freaking insane person. <laughs> okay, listeners, to set the scene, Jen is filling me in. We are at a lovely air-conditioned studio in Manhattan. And as usual, she's having... Subway fun whenever we try to leave Rockaway, which is where she lives. Let's just get down to business here, Jen Poyant. Nice interview. How did it feel to be behind the mic? Great. Yeah? Yeah. It's a nice change. You know, I don't do it very often. You always kind of push me into it. I always wonder if you like it or if you're like, ugh, or... It's both. You know, it takes a little bit of time to get into the groove, you know, and then you do and you feel good. And- yeah. It's like when you get invited to a party and you're all nervous and then you go and you relax and it turns out to be fine. Yeah, it's fine. And you're glad you went. Yes. (laughs) But you know, my general comfort zone is not on the mic, it's behind. Yeah, but you know, I feel like that's just everybody. You're not comfortable with something you don't do all the time. That's true. So Exactly. So it's good. It's good for you to push me in front of it. Good. All right. So can I just clarify here, if I'm understanding it correctly, Kay is cobbling his income together, right? So he's Mm -hmm. uh, editor-at-large for Quartz, Mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite news sites, I have to say. Um, And then I read a blog post where he said that he's creating this course from Manhattan Beach where I work for myself, writing, coaching, and giving talks under the Rad Reads umbrella. So that's Rad Reads if you want to check out his stuff. He says, every morning I surf with the dolphins, make breakfast for my wife and kids after having slept a solid eight hours, I don't set an alarm unless the waves are good. I never work with assholes. And despite living in LA, I don't commute. I work about 40 hours a week. If I didn't know he was such a great guy, I would hate him. You'd be like, F you. Yeah. Go fuck yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I fully support that lifestyle fully. I think it's great. I didn't ask him directly how much money he's making because I thought that would maybe be an indelicate question. But he did say that he's making enough to support that lifestyle. 
and that's oh, enough yeah. for him. And and so and then, Manhattan Beach is like you know it's, it's not nice. Dude. LA's if you're gonna live anywhere near the waves in LA, you're gonna pay. A, it's a very expensive state to live in. So I, after listening to the interview that you did, it made me think like I can totally see that he actually fills a really important need potentially in the financial services industry mm-hmm. of people who are really deeply unhappy <laughs> and like need someone who gets where they're coming from and helps them get through this idea of not making a ton of money anymore. But like you guys talked about transitioning how they think of success and presumably he would be paid uh, well. well and just as much as he paid for his own coaching he could be paid. Yeah, I have this fantasy of people secretly going to him, yes. like these men in the industry that would ne- like kind of like today. There are some people that still wouldn't fully admit that they go see a therapist, but yes, these guys would go to him and be like, "I'm just really going happy. for a walk on the beach. Yeah, it's <laughs> just a bro walk. It's cool." <laughs> I have to say, it makes me a little nervous, but I guess you can make a living if you're coaching people who are already rich. But kind of need help being more soulful. Do I sound like a cynical? A little bit. Biatch. That's okay. We were talking about this the other day. And we were trying to figure out the same question we keep asking a lot of oh, our guests. Right? We had the same conversation with Mallory Kasdan. Oh yes, a couple episodes back. You know, She's so like, awesome. The episode called 46 Female and Ambitious." Ambitious." Is that so wrong? <laughs> That's how I keep thinking of it. Is that so wrong? Oh my god! I wish you had done that in the episode. Should have done that. Anyway, go on. So we asked the same question, right? She had made a similar jump or leap. And actually, Mm. at one point during our editorial meetings, I was saying that I think this is almost a companion episode to that Ah. episode because, but yet he comes at it from the perspective of a father and a man. Ooh, that's a good exercise. Couples, go next time you have a long uh, journey. Listen to the Mallory episode and then listen to the K episode. Yes. Discuss. Exactly. So I was thinking, you know, we asked that same question, like, is she going to be able to make enough money making quote unquote content? I know. Like, is there enough? And he, I think he would say that you're coming from a scarcity perspective. I'm doing what makes me happy. I'm writing. Some people like my writing and it also leads to coaching work. So what's the problem? I don't know. Still makes me nervous. But why? I'm curious. Why? Well, I think because because we're trying to figure out how to make our money. But no, here's what <laughs> here's what he has that we don't have, and yes. this is crucial. And he says it in the interview. He says when he was freaking out, his wife was like, "You know how to handle money. You know how to manage money. You know how to assess risk." And not that we're dum dums, but well, we do have that. We have no, no, awesome no. accountants. Yes, but wait. Good. We didn't work at BlackRock. Do you know what I mean? Like this guy knows how to like run analysis. He wanted to go into fintech, which by the way, for those of you who aren't in the lingo, it's financial technology. So basically build could be anything, an app, a service, a platform that helps people do trades or whatever, Mm -hmm. anything financial related. So like this guy knows money. Yeah. And I'm perfectly happy to say like that is not <laughs> my forte, yeah. you know? What I would say is he would then turn to us and say, "Yeah, but I'm writing and like you guys have all of the experience, the 15 years in journalism and and publishing and writing." And 
Um, I do want to point out something very interesting, which is that last month, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase said it agreed to pay a $5 million settlement to a class action lawsuit filed on behalf of a dad and other male employees who said that they were not given access to the same parental leave as moms. Oh, Isn't that interesting? I think that's great. Yeah, and he was represented, this dad was represented by the ACLU, and it, from what I read, this is the first time there's ever been a class action lawsuit on behalf of male employees claiming they were denied equal parental leave. I'm Things are fully changing. support them, that man and the other men. It's fascinating. When I had my baby, my husband took two days off at the architecture firm that he was working at. And it, I was very resentful, not of him, but just that that was the way it was back then. Yeah. A whole eight years ago. A whole eight. I mean, but don't you feel like things have changed? Things have changed. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Okay. There's one more thing I wanted to point out that I thought was really useful in your interview. He mentioned that one of the things that he has people do, and maybe he got this from one of his coaches, is write down the 10 things that they spend money on. And of course, to me, I felt, I was thinking about this exercise and I was like, you know, this is for people of a certain means to begin with, right? Like if you're... Maybe. Well, look, if you don't have means, you're like, I use Food. money to eat. Yeah, exactly. I use money, sure. you know, it's like, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, yes, right? exactly. Like he's talking about the bag lady syndrome. Yeah, Women I, who make over 250 grand a year who think they're going to be homeless. And his point is like, slow down. Yeah. Look at what you really desire and value. Yeah. And you'll see that you can put creative work or more thoughtful work or less like financial services oriented work mm -hmm. ahead of what you're doing. I think that's true. But I, I would say it would behoove almost anyone. I mean, I definitely think he's speaking to rich people, but I think he might be also speaking to like middle class people that also go into debt or don't have, you know, nobody has savings anymore in this country because mm. everybody goes into debt, credit card debt. Yeah, but these people do, don't you think? No. I mean, the whole bag lady syndrome thing indicates that those ladies are spending See, oh, I interpreted it completely differently, that he was saying that potentially they're coming from this sense of scarcity as well, that they could end at any moment, yeah. but that they probably do have savings and they probably would be okay. I thought that was no, his point. No, it's like, why, why would they end up being homeless if they have a bunch of savings? No, but they, I thought his point was like, you're not going to be homeless. Duh. I think he's saying you absolutely do not have to be homeless. Just put some money aside. So, because you make $250,000 a year. Yeah, Put but some that money goes aside. fast depending on where you live and what you're, like, if you're paying off. Yeah, but I'm sorry, but at that point, write down what you spend and choose to cut out five things. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I've been very open about the fact that, like, we both live in New York City and I didn't have any savings when we started this business. I wasn't making two hundred fifty grand a year, but I probably should save a certain percentage well, of my salary. Is it okay to tell people that you've set a goal for yourself with that? Yes. We don't have to say specifically what it is, obviously, yeah. but like that's, but it's that's a, a very five year goal thing. that right. we talked about the other day. I like that we talked about your savings goal. Yeah. It's important. It is important. I think it's very relevant to so, what he's talking about. So I did the 10 things, but I could only come up with eight, which oh, I seems got, lame. No, it doesn't. That's fine. Which seems. I bet you some others will spark. I'm not supposed to use the word lame, which seems. Like I'm silly. silly or like I'm missing something. Maybe something will come up. Okay, do you want to read yours? Yes. Go. Number one, <laughs> to provide for myself and my son. What does that mean, provide? You mean... Summer camp. Food. All the things? Healthy food. Oh, I broke all those out. Well, the, 
But it's oh. it's a large sense of why do I make money? I make money to provide. God. Oh, I see. I'm a I provider. See, I see. I see. I did this completely differently. Okay, keep going. Number two, to clothe myself in reasonable clothing. To clothe myself. <laughs> You're like, not unreasonable, just reasonable. Just clothing. reasonable. <laughs> not crazy designer stuff, but also <laughs> stuff that I can walk out and feel like I'm putting my best foot forward. That's great. Go on. Number three, to create time, flexibility, to exercise, meditate, <laughs> i.e. to live a healthy life and body. Down with that. Number four, to save for a secure retirement. Nice. Which I put on hold for one year when we started this business, and now I'm starting again. Look at that. That's amazing. Yes. I really That's am amazing. starting. High five on that one. Also, so sweaty. I know. Also, Thanks to your support as a business partner, by the way, because you were very supportive during that process. About paying off debt, too. Yep. Number five, to support my community. Oh, very good. Meaning, like, School? my no, my like my friends run a business and I buy I, things from them, that it. sort of thing, in my my neighborhood. You drink their margaritas sometimes. Sometimes <laughs> I buy a dress that is handmade and locally made, That's that nice. sort of thing. Yep. <clears throat> Number six, to create a business sustainable enough to continue providing fair compensation to the people that work with us and for us. Well, that's lovely and thoughtful and absolutely the right thing to do. I'm down with that. Number seven, to create a warm, loving, comfortable home for my son. How is that different than the, the first one? It's just more specific. It's kind of like the clothes and the food. Okay. Okay. Like plants? Yes, exactly. Hmm. I spend money. I spend I a lot of money on it house plants. It looks amazing, dude. The plants really make it feel very nurturing. Thank you. Artwork. I buy artwork. All again from local artists. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Listeners, don't you just want to hang out with to eat healthy food. Yeah, that was on my list too. Number nine, to surf and travel. That's like Yeah, that's really important. Number ten, this is like an aspirational one to own a home one day again. That's great. That's it. Okay. I didn't write them down, which is very unlike me because I was yeah. walking. Uh-huh. I was walking, so I did them in my head. So we'll see how I can do. Okay, number one that I want to spend my money on are mortgage and utilities because we do own a home, but our mortgage is ginormous. Mm-hmm. Number two is – I like that you factored in utilities into that. That's very, like, specific. <laughs> but they're expensive. Because the bill comes to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. Number two, to eat quality food. Yep. I really, really care about – not just yummy food, but like quality food. Mm-hmm. The farmer's market near our house is so expensive. Yeah. It's insane. Yep. But you know what? It's a donation and I'm supporting local farmers. Absolutely. Who, like, yes. Down with that. Number, okay. Mine are a little more embarrassing. That's okay. I'm not going to judge you. <laughs> this is really crazy, but my coffee habit. You know, there was a great article in the New York Times called Drink the Coffee because, you know, every personal finance person will be like, if you cut out that cup of coffee, that's saving $4 a day and look how much that can add up to be. But I get so much more than just a hot beverage by going to get coffee. I agree. It is like smoking a cigarette for me. Me It's like a break, a, a ritual. I enjoy it so much that I think it is worth the money. I think that's great, and it's similar, actually, to Kay's wife saying, like, if you're going to, like, second-guess yourself over a bottle of wine, again, this is a privileged conversation, so. Yes, then don't do it. Uh, and again, as you just put it, it's supporting my local name. <laughs> Moving on, uh, supporting, making donations. That's really important to me that I give my money to make a 
donation to our local public school and to other organizations Rad. that I believe in. It's not as much as I would like to give. I'd like to give more. What do you do? You just give it to the PTA? Yeah. Uh-huh. We write a check to the PTA. Um, I think every parent who can should do that because that's a the great schools idea. are not paid enough money Yep. and they don't have any supplies. So even our tax dollars at work, are, it's not enough. That's a great one. It's a great one. I believe in that one. Uh... My Pilates have become really important to me because my back doesn't hurt. And when my back doesn't hurt, I'm happy. Oh, stuff for my kids. I want them to be able to take music lessons and go to camp. Mm -hmm. Foreign lands. Really important that my kids see the world. I feel bad about my carbon footprint with that. So I might have to start writing. Oh, yeah. That's a good idea. And I think that's all I got. Oh, no. Really important. Enough money that I could not work for a year if one of my kids or my husband or my parents got very ill. I think that's a good one too. Yeah. I just want to say that all of those things on the list yes. reflect desires to either protect our own health, the health of our families, or our communities for the most part, or the world even. Yeah. Oh, so, so, so back to Kay's point. Yes. That it's not like I was like, I really want jewels and I really want a Maserati and I need luxury in my life. Nobody, we, you're not you're asking. really good at that. Thank I you. love when you do that. Um, we don't need any of those things. I would also like to get to the point where we could give back in other ways. That's always a, a big go- you know, goal mm. in order to kind of be aware of our privilege to do this. But at the same time, like, yeah, it doesn't mean that ever. we have to apologize for spending the money in ways that create, I think, a more holistic experience in the world. Okay. Another episode, new episode, is coming next week. Boom, boom, boom. Three in a row this month. We are talking to someone who didn't quit their job because she claims that she could never actually hold down a job. We're talking to our fabulous Radiotopia colleague, Helen Zaltzman, about how she and her husband have been traveling the world, making her podcast for the last two years, how she almost died in Tasmania, which is crazy, and how hard it is to make sure that you don't burn out when you don't have financial stability. Listeners, do you have financial stability? Have you written yourself a, a list like the one that we just did? If you do have financial stability, how? What choices have you made? If not, how does it affect your life? I think this is going to be interesting. Please record a voice memo or just email us at zigzag at stable G. That is zigzag at stable G.com. Also, hopefully you are signed up for the newsletter that I send out every other Thursday. I've got links special note for you, my favorite stuff that I've read or seen over the week, plus all the episodes that we've been working on that you might have missed that we're making here at Stable Genius Productions. So please sign up at StableG.com. It is free, StableG.com. This episode was produced by me and Jen Poyant. Matt Boynton is our audio engineer and sound designer. David Herman is our composer. Maria Wartell is our production coordinator. Many thanks to Anya Zhezik and Marcy Thompson's production help, too. Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Manoush Samarodi. I'm Jen Poyant. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much. 
My voice always sounds really good it's when I'm here soothing. too. It makes me want to talk I can't hear like myself, this. Paul. That's okay. Just listen to Should me, I Jen. Turn this thing? Just listen to me. Ooh. <sighs> Sexy. 